0: Well, let me open us with a word of prayer just in general, and we'll jump into our teaching in 1 Peter chapter 2 today. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity to be together together with your people. I pray that you would be with our hearts. Lord, I'm not the only one that had issues this week that are distracting, that cause our minds to be all over the place. Lord, help us focus on you and your word. Help us to be able to rest in you and trust in you and help us to rejoice in what you've done for us through Jesus Christ. I pray for our teaching time this morning and I pray that you would enable us to gather all that you have for us from your word. And I pray for the teaching by Pastor Steve in the main service and this evening that you'll you've given us all these opportunities to hear your word. I pray that we'll hear it and apply it to our lives. We ask these things in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. So, as we come to our text this morning, we are in 1 Peter chapter 2, and we are coming to the homestretch, the final pieces of a section that Peter is using, as with the whole book, to encourage believers and to help them be able to keep moving forward even when times are difficult. As we've said over and over again, the original recipients of 1 Peter were believers who were going through significant hardships. Many of them were suffering, and based on the context, some were suffering at the hands of their masters, some were suffering at the hands of the government, some were just suffering at the hands in general of society that was hostile to them. And Peter wanted them to understand that they could keep moving forward. He wanted them to understand, first and foremost, that they needed to live holy. That's the call of the book, be holy as God is holy. But that they could be holy even when things are difficult. I think it's natural for all of us when things are going good to think being holy is easy. But if things are hard, then our flesh wants to respond, particularly if they're hard, in a way that we perceive to be unfair. So Peter was not naive, he knew about a sin-filled world, he had experienced it himself, he knew that the people he was writing to were dealing with that, and so he was trying to prepare their hearts for how to live obediently when things are challenging. And we spent a lot of weeks on the idea of submission, one of the things that he was trying to teach them was that we're supposed to be submissive in various facets of life. We're not always supposed to have a chip on our shoulder with our balled-up fists ready to fight back. Rather, we're supposed to be meek and humble and gentle no matter the circumstances, no matter where we are. And the text that we've been covering for several weeks and that we'll cover at least for another week really is profound because it puts a lot of the teaching in context, but it also can be transformative for us and to give us focus To enable us to endure anything. In fact, as I alluded to last week, I believe when I was teaching, I come to this verse more often in counseling than almost any other because it's got a picture of Jesus that is supposed to transform us. Not just theologically, but practically. Because Jesus did things that show we can do things. And the things that Jesus did aren't natural. In other words, they're not our basic human instinct to injustice and trial, but they're supposed to be our biblical instinct. So follow along with me. We're in 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm reading verses 21 to 25. It's an entire section, and we've been teaching on it, and I'll go over the outline in a moment, but follow along with me as I read. For you have been called for this purpose... Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Now, as I've been covering this text over an extensive period of time, we have basically a four-part outline. I've broken it down. Four truths for enduring injustice with godliness. Four truths for enduring injustice with With godliness. Now we've already covered the first two. Today we're going to cover the third. Lord willing next week the fourth. But the first truth was that God's children are called to suffer. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you. I won't recap all the teaching on that. But suffice to say what Peter is letting us know. When we suffer. When we endure injustice. When things aren't fair to us we have to realize that's just part of our calling. We live in a fallen world. Christ endured those things. We will endure those things. In fact, when God called us, part of what He called us to was a life that in some respects, at certain times, is going to be given the opportunity to emulate our Savior. And the second truth was along those lines. God's Son is the perfect example. We covered this in extensive detail. But it says, in verse 21, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. It couldn't be clearer. Jesus was our example. It's a cliche and people got tired of the braces. What would Jesus do? Because people trotted it out all the time. But the reality is, we're supposed to look at what Jesus did and do what he did. And there was a negative aspect. He never sinned. He didn't sin in what He did. He didn't sin with His mouth. As I alluded to in teaching several weeks ago, that's the evidence of a perfection, of a maturity. James had said, if you don't sin with your mouth, if you can control your tongue, you're a perfect man, meaning you're complete. Christ was that. He was reviled. He didn't lash out. He was suffering. He didn't lash out. That's a powerful example. We're supposed to be that way. Again, chip on the shoulder, clenched fist is the American way. That's not the biblical way. That's not what Jesus did. So he didn't revile in return. He didn't utter any threats, and we covered in extensive detail last week, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He was content to place his earthly fate in the hands of a loving Heavenly Father. That's the call to us. The issue is that that's not passive that just says, okay, just whatever happens. No, that is an active thing. It says, Lord, I trust you, I submit to you. Whatever you have for me, I'll keep going. I trust and I have faith in you. Jesus turned the entire issue over to God. In fact, there was an opportunity when one of his servants pulled out a sword, started swinging. Jesus like, like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I could call down a legion of angels. What are you doing? It's not necessary. So Jesus understood, and he could have defended himself, He's the only human being that would have really been innocent. But he knew God judged us righteously. He knew he would be vindicated ultimately. But he also knew that those who punished him would receive justice, except not necessarily the justice that we would want. As I reminded you, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. For us, when somebody does something to us, it's like, could okay, get them. You know, rain down fire, Lord. Today's not too soon. I'll just wait. We open up the Old Testament, Sodom and Gomorrah. There's got to be a message for me right here. This is going to cover me. No, that's not it. Jesus didn't take matters into his own hand in any earthly sense. He entrusted himself to God. He knew God's plan for him. He knew what was coming. There's a picture of Jesus entrusting Himself to God that comes at the end of the cross that shows how complete Jesus' submission was. He was dying on the cross. It was brutal. God the Father turned His back on God the Son as the wrath of God for all the sins of all believers of all times was poured out by God the Father on God the Son. I've shared before, I, I, I understand that better than I ever have because of Pastor Steve's teaching. I can't comprehend what Jesus went through. Such that Jesus, Matthew 27:46 records, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Brutal agony and suffering, far beyond anything we'll ever approach in this life. It was a dark time from any human standpoint, a hopeless time. But as the suffering drew to a close, Jesus turned to the one who judges righteously. In Luke twenty three, forty six it says this And Jesus crying out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this he breathed this last. Complete and total trust and commitment. Even after what he had endured, Jesus understood who God the Father was. Even in the darkest times. So Jesus is truly our example. We're supposed to follow in his steps. But then Peter steps into an area of theology that is supposed to also enable us to do these things. And that leads us to our third truth for enduring injustice with godliness. It is this. The cross ensures our ultimate victory. The cross ensures our ultimate victory. I'm going to read the end of verse 23, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Verse 24, and he himself bore our sins in His body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by His wounds, you were healed. What we have in front of us this morning, the text we're looking at, unrelated to my teaching, is the most important truth ever recorded in human history. But as much as I can, I want to try and help you see, as I help myself see, how this important truth ties into the practical calling to live a godly life, even when things are hard. All these concepts of submission, submission to government, even when the government is corrupt, submission to a master, in our context an employer, even when the employer is crooked and perverse... And in the chapter we're about to come into submitting to a husband even when he disobeys the Lord. And loving your wife even when she's challenging to live with. It all comes in and this practically applies. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. That's of course the gospel. That's the best news. The good news It's the best news that could ever exist and also evidence of what in any other context would be considered the greatest injustice of all time. So I'm going to try and break these pieces down. I'm going to try and explain. I think when you read it, you go, well, I understand that. I certainly think that in the main thing. And it's not so mystical or elusive that you don't have a basic understanding. What I want to try and help us do, or what I want to try and help me do, is to see how this practically connects with all that we're talking about and how it helps us live differently. So Peter says, he himself bore our sins. He himself is emphatic, obviously talking about Jesus. And it conveys an idea that Jesus alone, Jesus himself, only Jesus could do this. No one else could do this. No one else did this. Only Jesus and solely Jesus, he himself for our sins. He had no help. He needed no help. In fact, there would be no one who could have helped Jesus do this incredible thing. I wouldn't encourage you to go read Roman Catholic doctrine, but part of the reason why it's so offensive when they refer to Mary as a co redemptrix and co mediatrix is because it was He Himself. Jesus bore our sins, only Jesus. And Peter used very descriptive words to convey an image. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Again, he was talking to a Jewish, primarily people who were Christians who had come out of a Jewish background. They would have had a familiarity with the Old Testament. And the phrase on the cross is descriptive because Peter intentionally used language that I think would emphasize injustice, but the language was actually emphasizing an Old Testament text. But the descriptiveness of the term helps highlight the injustice that's going on in the process. Again, I said before, this is describing the greatest injustice of all times. A man who committed no sin, Jesus, was convicted by a kangaroo court, was tortured, and ultimately killed by the most brutal form of capital punishment in place at that time, anywhere in the world, and he was innocent. But that's not what I mean by the greatest injustice. That was an injustice. But I think you understand, Jesus isn't the first innocent person convicted of a crime. That happens all the time. I'm thankful to live in America with all our protection. But I can tell you, I don't trust our justice system. Now, I'm a lawyer, so you think, well, he's just a cynical lawyer. Why don't I trust our justice system? Because they only have people to implement it. And what are people? Sinners. A little side note, and I won't go down this. I sat on a criminal jury one time. Shocking because normally they would kick a lawyer off. I wound up being the jury foreman on a criminal case. And it reinforced to me that I don't want my life in the hands of 12 of my fellow citizens. (laughs) And I think that that sounds funny, and I think it is funny, except that I'm deadly serious. Now, by God's grace, it was a Case where the evidence, and I could walk through, but I realized there's no justice. If you have enough money, you can get an outcome. But if you don't have a lot of money, any one of us would get ground up. And what's going to happen? Everybody's going to think you're guilty, whether you are or whether you aren't. Because you've got no resources to defend yourself. So there's a sense in which Jesus was swept up in an injustice of that particular time that was very unjust, But again, that happens. There's a lot of innocent people put to death. What do I mean then? That was an injustice, a travesty of law, but the real injustice is on an eternal scale, and I hope I can convey this to you. Peter's use of the word translated cross conveys, as I mentioned before, something that ties into Deuteronomy. You don't have to turn there, but let me give you a reference. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23. If a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. For he who is hanged is accursed of God so that you do not defile your land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. To hang someone on a tree was a picture. They were accursed of God. In fact, Paul uses that exact imagery with Christ. Galatians 3.13 The manner of death inflicted upon Jesus was horrific, but it was also a picture of one accursed of God. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become... A curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So Peter's use of this imagery is not accidental. And it highlights the epic injustice. Jesus was sinless, we know that. When I was teaching on it, I read countless various references that he who knew no sin became sin. Tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. That was the language of 22, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. He didn't sin in action, he didn't sin word. Jesus was truly innocent. But when you look at what he did, he bore our sins. Our sins. Here's the point we are guilty. We deserve to be accursed of God. We did it. If we suffered, it would not be an injustice. It would be true justice. But Jesus stepped into our place. He took our punishment. As Peter will tell us later... 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also died for sins once for all the just for the unjust. So that he might bring us to God. Having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. So here's what I'm trying to do in no doubt an imperfect way. I'm trying to emphasize this a lot. Because we're dealing in this portion of Scripture with how to respond godly when things aren't fair, when it is unjust, injustice is reigning, when we're treated badly by our government, when we're treated badly at work, as we'll see when we're treated badly by our spouse. Or when we're treated badly by our children. Or when we're treated badly by fellow church members. Or when we're treated badly by our extended family. We can still respond as God responded. And it's tied up in this truth. This is made possible when we realize that we are the recipients of this great injustice. Wait a second. What do I mean? Jesus willingly endured injustice so that we might be brought to God. Hallelujah indeed. He took our sins and suffered for them even though it was not fair. We struggle so much when we're treated unfairly because it's not fair. And we have something built into us, a compass, even when we're unbelievers that says that's not right. I deserve better. I deserve something different than the cards that have been dealt to me. I deserve better from my spouse. I deserve better from my kids. I deserve better from my job. I deserve better from my government. I deserve better from my church. I deserve better. I deserve, I deserve, I deserve. I'm entitled. Now that's the American way. You know what we deserve? I think you do. We deserve death. That's the wages of sin. We deserve hell. We deserve the wrath of God. There's a phrase that some of you say, and I first heard this in California from a believer from the former Soviet Union. And anytime you would ask him, How are you doing? he'd always say, Better than I deserve. I know Dennis uses that statement. Several others do. Traces back around Lakeside. Harry Nichols used to use it a lot. Our brother who's home with the Lord. You realize that's really, 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 really true. (laughs) So you think about whatever hardship you're going through. And it's hard. It's not wrong to want relief. It's not wrong to cry out to God for deliverance. The Psalms are replete. With calling out the Lord, saying, "Lord, just deliver me." But what we have to realize that even in the midst of the injustice, even in the midst of the hardship, we still have Christ. We still have our salvation. We still don't get hell. Let me finish up this particular verse. It's all about perspective. It's all about seeing ourselves rightly in relation to the world and rightly in relation to God. Peter gives an explanation of why Christ Himself bore our sins in His body, identifying Himself as one who is cursed of God, The end of verse 24, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That's the lifelong goal of every believer. That's why I can't wait for heaven. Because it's so hard to die to sin. However many years you've been a believer, you've been trying to do that. And if you woke up this morning and you looked in the mirror honestly, I hope you could say I'm doing better than I was when I was first saved, but I still got a long way to go. I'm still not there. That we might die to sin. It's not just talking about our actions, although there is an active aspect of it. Something. It's not talking about something we might be able to do, even though the phraseology seems that way. In part, it's talking about a completed past action Something that's already happened that guarantees that we can do something. I've already alluded to just, and I don't normally ask for a response. What is the wages of sin? Death, and not just physical death. Although death entered the world through Adam, it's spiritual death. That's the ultimate issue. That's why the Scripture talks about having victory over the second death. You know, it's not eternal judgment if you come to believe Christ died so that all judgment all condemnation would be done away with for us at the moment of our salvation our sin is paid forever and part of that is that death is no longer there because death has already been satisfied but now sin isn't our master We're not hopelessly enslaved to the flesh anymore. I still struggle to get my mind around this truth that I know to be true. Because it is at such contradiction in my thinking to who I am and the battle I have had against sin since I was saved. God looks at us and sees us as holy as His Son. That can't be, because I don't see myself that way. But it's true. And even if we don't feel holy, and even if we're commanded to be holy as an indication that we're not there yet, the reality is, because of what Christ did when He bore our sins, we are holy before God. That is incomprehensible. So we have to remove from our vocabulary when it comes to the relation to sin, the words, I couldn't. Because we could. Because of what Christ did. So we die to sin. There's a sense in which it's already done for us. But live to righteousness is an indication of that aspect of becoming more holy, of progressive sanctification. Meaning, you should be more holy at the end of your life in Christ than at the beginning of your life in Christ. And unfortunately, we have these graphs that go up and down a little bit when we take a step back and two steps forward and three steps back. But the reality is, is Christ has made it possible for us to have victory. No matter what, we have the capacity now to truly live for the Lord. It's always a challenge because there's an aspect of being a pastor where you're called to warn people and you're trying to open their eyes to dangers that are coming their way. And I have done that from time to time, talking about politics, although we're not a political church. But I've shared my thoughts in terms of where I see persecution coming for the church in America. Where that pers- what that persecution would probably look like. And I've alluded to the fact that I think first and foremost the purification of the church will come because the penalties will be financial. And we all love our money. But the fact remains, what if all that comes true? What if it does? What if we lose all of our tax deductions? What if giving to the church doesn't help you? What if the church has to pay taxes? What if they start cracking down on what we can say and what we can do? What if that far-fetched time comes when they try and come within the doors of the church and silence pastors? Even then, we can still live for Christ even then we can die to sin and live to righteousness what we'll find is we're probably doing it with a few less people around us i think that's what's going to purify the church i've shared this before my friends from the old soviet union they said in the days of communism the church was pretty pure because if you identified with the church you were going to jail you were going to suffer I'll never forget my friend telling me he was singled out in kindergarten because his parents were Christian and the teacher said, don't play with him. How's that for, how was kindergarten, kid? He had to serve in the military like everybody else. They put the Christians with the criminals and the insane. But he said when communism fell, the church had a problem. Because then anybody could go to church. In fact, they used to wait up to two years at times to baptize somebody. Why? That's not in the scriptures. Because they had to make sure that they were really a Christian. Because it was life or death if you let the wrong person into the church. If you let a spy. So they wanted to see. And they didn't talk about conversion. They didn't talk about believing. They talked about someone repenting. Because it was a change. Here's the whole point. There's something about persecution and oppression, apparently, that purifies. Kind of takes care of the looky-loos. Well, if I'm just going to hang out with a group of people, there's a better group that doesn't hurt me to hang out with. In our worst nightmare for America, we can still follow Christ's example. It's been so freeing to me to not get so concerned about the outcome of every election. Because at the end of the day, our status in Christ doesn't depend on who's in the White House. It doesn't. Now, I'm going to read a lengthy section of Scripture that I think summarizes everything we're talking about. And unfortunately, as is always the case, when you read a lengthy section of Scripture, I'm going to resist the temptation to try and explain what I'm explaining, because I'm using this Scripture to explain the Scripture I'm explaining and I don't want to explain it to it. Ex- <laughs> and that was intentional. Um, so just follow along with me, how Paul describes this transaction. He himself bore our sins on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. In Romans chapter six. Romans chapter six, I'm going to read verses 1 through 14. Paul says this, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for He who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that it you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting your, the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. The next time, and it could be this afternoon, it could be this morning, it could be tomorrow, that you're faced with injustice. It's not fair. Take a deep breath and think about what Christ did. Injustice, that's what he had. You're the beneficiaries of the greatest injustice of all time. An innocent holy man endured the wrath of God for a guilty man. Think many times of the imagery of Colossians chapter 2. It's a powerful image of what Christ did for us. And again, when you think about, but it's not fair. Colossians 2, 13 and 14. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him Having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Now that's perspective, that calms our pride. Because rather than thinking of how could they do that to such an exemplary human being like myself, what we realize is we've got a big ticket that says guilty. Death. That's what we deserve. And Christ took that and it was nailed to the tree and all the punishment was placed on Him. This kind of takes us off our high horse when we say how dare you! Because we realize we're the winners. Not for our sake. We've seen the end of the book. We've seen the final chapter. The end, happily ever after, is true when it comes to Christ. So whatever happens in any intervening chapters before you with Christ, just have perspective. Is it unfair? Of course it is. Obey anyway. Was it insulting and demeaning when they lied about you? Of course. Is the hurt real? Yes, but take that hurt to God. Don't reply in kind. But what they did was evil against me. Absolutely it was. I'm not saying it wasn't. Don't repay evil for evil. But they are making my life what I perceive to be an exemplar of what the actual hell would be like. You may not be overstating things. That might not be hyperbole. Pray for their salvation. Peter has this little clause at the end. It says, For by his wounds you were healed. For by his wounds you were healed. Now this is one of those verses that is regularly abused. But it shouldn't be. And I think the understanding will be very clear to us, although it is tempting even when we know good theology to sort of wrench it out of context and trot it out and put it on top of a situation. Peter is stating simply a truth of our salvation in a manner reminiscent and borrowing from the words of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 53, we understand if you've read that text at all, it just leaps off the page what Christ did. I'm just going to read a snippet. Isaiah 53 verses 3 to 5. Isaiah 53 verses 3 to 5. He was despised, talking about Christ, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken smitten of God and afflicted but he was pierced through for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities the chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed so when Peter says for by his wounds you were healed he's tying directly into that messianic prophetic text But it probably shouldn't need saying, but I need to say it because it keeps popping up all over Christendom. He is not promising in any way that because Christ died on the cross for our sins, we are guaranteed that we will be healthy. There is a prominent and massive erroneous theology that goes under various names, propounded by countless representatives that are all over TV that says, if you know Christ, you should not be sick. Just in the past few weeks, a prominent televangelist, his wife, who also preaches, said, and it was all over the secular news, there's no such thing as a flu epidemic. You keep hearing about a flu epidemic, that's a lie. Why? Because by his wounds we are healed. So this person was saying, there's no flu, there's no epidemic. It's just a lie. No Christian should ever be sick. What's shocking to me is that these people make so much money. They're flying around in private jets. They're staying in ten and $20,000 a night hotel rooms. I used to always tell people, I'm only taking a pay cut because I want to be an honest pastor. <laughs> there are people getting rich. In fact, if you go over to Africa, it was prevalent. That was the other thing about the fall of the Soviet Union. I went on a missions trip to Ukraine. The biggest church there was populated by a disciple of these people. Because they promise people that if you have enough faith and it doesn't hurt to send me $20 a month if you have enough faith and you put that faith into action through sending me $50 a month and if you have enough faith and if you live out that faith by giving me your credit card for a monthly charge of $600 you'll never be sick. And in fact if you get sick it's a lying sign. Here's the point. That's all foolishness. I wouldn't even mention it except that I keep seeing Christians that when somebody gets sick, they come to this verse and they say, for by his wounds we're healed and they want to go pray for somebody. That's not what this is talking about. And even good believers who know better fall into that because we want hope. There's hope, but it didn't in that verse. This is talking about our souls, our spiritual health you can always prove all of those televangelists and those prosperity preachers' faults by this simple fact. The ultimate issue of the cross was death. It wasn't illness, it was death. So if you read the biblical image of what happened on the cross, it had to do with death. And what we know and what our hope is, we have conquered death. So by their analogy, if Jesus on the cross conquered death, and if Jesus conquered sin and sickness then they shouldn't die forget being sick they shouldn't die shockingly guess what everyone of them dead they die the founders of this movement I could quote the names to you they're all dead shockingly enough they died of diseases except they didn't if you hear them except that they did because they were in the grave here's the point I only mention that because, again, I see this bad theology creep up even amongst good people. This isn't talking about our physical healing. This is just saying that when Christ himself bore our sins on the cross and endured the wrath of God, we were spiritually healed forever. Now, let me tell you, when you're sick, you pray. Because God still does heal. Sometimes he doesn't heal. That's in God's prerogative, but we pray. Someone's sick, according to the Bible, you call the elders and have them pray for you. So in no way am I suggesting that there's not hope in God, even in the midst of illness. Of course, we pray, but this isn't a promise that God's going to take away the issues that afflict you. When it comes to our physical bodies, but it is a promise that Christ has taken away every affliction of a spiritual nature that would condemn us to hell. Jesus defeated death on the cross, and by his wounds, we are healed spiritually. Ultimately, in the midst of our trials, we come back to the reality that we don't get what we deserve. We come back to the reality that we are the victors. We have hope. Christ gave us an example even in the midst of hardship. He didn't lash out, He didn't fight back. He entrusted Himself to God. We do the same thing. And Jesus did it knowing ultimately God was victorious. He conquered sin and death. And we have that victory. We have that capacity now to live differently. So we are dead to sin. We can die to sin. We can live to righteousness. We can follow the perfect example of our Savior because of the perfect work of our Savior on the cross. And like I said, this affects everything. This affects the bad week that you think you might have at work. Reflecting on what Jesus did as an example, but also what Jesus did for your sins. This affects you when the government bothers you. This affects you when everything else, and as I'm going to reiterate, once we get there, this affects your household relationships, your marriage. We need to reconsider how we apply the term that's not fair. And we need to put it in the right context and we need to keep it always in perspective. And in the midst of doing that, we praise the Lord that we don't get what we deserve. Join me as I close this time in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that we'll see the glory of Christ. Lord, even as I teach this, it's hard to fathom for me. I see a panorama of my entire life. I see the sins from childhood all the way up to the present. And it's incomprehensible that Christ died for it all. And I think my brothers and sisters marvel the same way. Lord, help us have perspective on life. Lord, help us see clearly. Help us recognize injustice when it exists. Help us not be perpetrators of injustice. Help us to treat others as we would want to be treated. Help us to treat others as Christ would treat them. But Lord, we're going to experience injustice. We're going to experience hardships. We're going to experience disappointment. Help us always keep it in perspective. In the cloud and fog that comes when we're hurting, help us always see Christ and His victory applied to our lives. We ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.